Hi, this is John Dawkins, and you're listening to Focus on Metal, one of the greatest rock shows on the planet. Keep listening, and keep rocking with Dawkins. Hey listeners, welcome to yet another week of Focus on Metal, and amazingly in the studio with me tonight is the one, the only, Richie. How we doing, man? Yeah, let out again on good behavior. <laughs> Once a year. Oh, I was let out permanently on bad behavior, so oh, there you go. That's a, you- a little yin and yang. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, uh, I guess a, a lot of a lot of people want to hear uh, what we've got to uh, put out this week in uh you are were able to finally uh, talk to Don Dawkin. Yeah, um, I've interviewed Mick and Reb and Jeff twice, I think. We twice, did. yep, yeah. twice. Um, I wanted to get Don on to talk about uh, Erase the Slate. Um, I wasn't going to do a project this year, um, what I was planning. It's, it's, you know, it's funny because I'm, I was looking at all the audio we had tonight. And as I finished looking at it, I looked at my the Kerrang folder that I had, and I was like, it's probably a good thing we didn't do a project this year because, <laughs> I mean, holy crap, we've got enough audio to almost get us to May at this point. So it's May crazy. What, May what year? <laughs> <laughs> so. Anyways, I'm sorry. Yeah. So one of the things I decided to do was uh, maybe <laughs> get some guys on that have an- anniversaries for albums that yeah. I really liked. Um, Erase the Slate is one of them I didn't want to just go back to the 80s on all of them because yeah. I figure a lot of these bands the 80s bands they did release some killer records after yeah. that yeah. Um, and Erase the Slate was always one that I wanted to uh, get yeah, in it's depth a good with, album. with it's good Dawn album. about yeah. um, especially because it was the first record without George on it uh-huh. and I had Reb on it and I'm a huge fan right. of, of Reb's and I'd already asked Rev about the record, and I'd asked Jeff about the record, right. and Mick in, in a, a little bit. A little bit. And when you, when never, you got a word in edgewise. Yeah, well, <laughs> Mick's, Mick's a great guy. Um, but I'd never interviewed Don before. I'd heard a, a lot of interviews uh, uh, with him. Yeah. And uh, actually, Neely from the Classic Metal Show uh-huh. uh, did this for me. Oh, cool. Um, and Chris Aiken, so a big thanks to them. Yeah. Uh, and I interviewed Don. He was in uh, Cleveland. Uh, doing a show it was their only gig that week so they flew to Cleveland to do one show that's yeah. I know if the bands are for pay, one show I know if the bands are paid yeah. I'm sure they'd Winger played a show up here a couple of weeks ago on a Thursday night in uh, in New Bedford and that was the only gig they had that week oh Greasy Luck yeah that was the only gig they had yeah uh, so the, if you pay if the bands are paid yeah they go and if it's only one show they still have to go I'm sure they'd rather do like two or three. I don't know. Area. Who, I don't know who books that greasy luck, but they he got some a lot of, pretty good acts in there. Got a lot of '80s bands. It seems like we're going to get off topic a little bit here. It's all right, we got time. Uh, certain venues around this area have been known for bringing in a lot of the '80s bands. Yeah, and this new venue seems to be the one that's. That's taking them all now, and the only problem for us is it's a little bit further away than the other ones. It's probably uh-huh. about an hour and a half. Yeah, because yeah, everyone that that comes up and 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 Nick will be like, oh, guess who's playing? And then I'll be like, yeah, look who the, where they're playing. She's like, the heck, it's this greasy luck place again. Yeah. Um, but but you know what it reminds me of is is when we were when we were playing out, um, it was really a fierce competition with booking agents. So uh, you know that the underground up near Drum Hill, mm-hmm. uh, that that place was pulling in like all these bands like just like Greasy Luck was. And it was amazing, like, the, the number of bands. And I'd be like, you know, we're opening for who kind of a thing. And then it was basically over a weekend, it all changed. Like, that booking agent got dragged up to Sharky's yeah. up in New Hampshire. And it just it all went up with him and stuff. So, I always, you know, it always stuck with me about how powerful some booking agents are and how they're connected and, and what they can bring in. And I figure that probably, yeah, Greasy Luck must have one of these guys who – really has all the right connections and just can bring everybody in. Well, there's always, and they probably don't stiff anybody. Well, there's always the market uh, for those bands. Yeah, but look at that area. It's kind of like... I don't know the area at all. I mean, I, New Bedford, it's kind of middle of nowhere. Well, I will I will say uh, there's, a, there's a weekend in May 
And if uh, if the gods work out, I think the Schenker Fest is Friday night in Worcester. Yeah. Metal Church in Doror in New Bedford on Saturday. Yeah. And Last in Line are in there on the Sunday. Yeah. Uh, hopefully, I'll try and make two of them. Yeah. Um, but there's, a, I think, Overkill are on the same night as Schenker. So you're spoiled that weekend here. Yeah. And with Death Angel. Yeah. Well, I'm, I've got already got tickets for Shanker, so. Okay. So, uh, so that's, that's a fabulous weekend. But what, what, you see, what I'm seeing a lot now as well with these venues that used to have the 80s acts, what they're doing now is they're getting into tribute bands. And they're selling out. Yeah. Yeah. As a matter of fact, um, Tupelo, they added, well, the week we're doing this, so it's a week or so ago, they, they added, like, in the middle of the week, they added that Bon Jovi tribute band DOA to the bill. Mm. So I don't know who, like, what happened, why they had a, uh, such an open Friday slot, but they did, and it was already, like, within two days was 70% sold out. Yeah, there's another, they've got a Rush tribute band, Lotus Land, that I think have sold it out. Yeah, they've been around for a bit, yeah. Mm. I, 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 these tribute bands are probably cheaper than... You know the original bass player just, with yeah, I mean to guns. some to some degree, but yeah, I mean it's still um, it's a good living. I mean, speaking of that, as long as we're we're talking about it, um, with with band versus brand, were you I saw surprised it. that Bob put in a, a chunk about tribute bands and stuff? Because no. I thought that was a pretty clever thing no. to put in there. The one thing I knew what Bob would do is he covered extensively. Yeah, and he did, and it was really good because. He re- he recognized that the branding thing and the people that he had on, yeah, it's not new. It's no. been going on since no, the fifties and sixties. The whole thing was exactly, exactly. Um, yeah. I am really happy he tackled the hologram thing, though. I was too. Yeah, yeah that was that was good that he put that in there. But uh, I just thought it was it was kind of uh, it was a good take. And then that guy from uh, Foreign R uh, really kind of laid that whole thing out about the fact that you know realistically right now. Foreigner is a tribute band, <laughs> you yeah. know. So it's uh, it was a, it was a good take on it, yeah. So, anyways, yeah, I just thought it was. And I, I I I commented to Bob on one of his Facebook posts. I said, "How big is David Ted's vinyl collection?" Yeah, I know. Because you could see he's, sta- he's sitting in a chair, yeah. and literally the whole of the wall behind him. Yeah, that's probably not even half it is vinyl. Yeah, and I'm just listening to him and trying to look at what he has on the uh-huh. wall behind him. It, it's something else. Yeah, there's a lot. It reminded me. It reminded me of being being on the radio and you know being in the stacks like that. But a lot of his too could be uh, just like you know a lot of my albums are are uh, you know sent sent as promos too. Mm-hmm. You know, and if you're in the industry like he is, he's probably getting tons of those. Mm. But then also, I mean, he's a super passionate guy, so I'm sure he's also going out and, and buying all kinds of stuff too. Mm. You know? But I think it's probably the best thing Bob has done. The inside metal documentaries are great, but this thing really clicked with me. I think it's so it's it's such a hot topic now. Well, I think people. too that it's a, it's and you know why why I liked it and and uh, almost wish we could have been able to get together and talk a little bit more about it is that it's always been something we've talked about on the show in one way or another. Yeah. And then even um, going back to to Jay and and we would talk about it when Jay was on the show too. So it's it's been kind of a long standing thing, but now now you kind of have I don't know if it's more the bands are behaving a little bit better or they're settling earlier or whatever it is, but you know, it used to be that for years it was it was the kind of the hidden like battles of the bands mm-hmm. and you 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 know, they would disappear for a while. You didn't know what you were going to get when it came out the back end. And now it seems like it's, um, it, it splits out easier, mm. you know? I think the problem as well, I don't know whether you'll agree with me, but sometimes with these guys now, I don't know what I'm promoting anymore. <laughs> I, re- <laughs> I, I really you, don't. You put that post up and you got a, a lot of good reactions. I, no, I re- I re- I'm serious. Yeah. It's, you know, you've got all these projects, you've got all these bands that have one original guy and you know what wh- what am i promoting uh-huh am i i'm i really don't know sometimes yeah well i look at it this way and maybe i look at it this way because of of having done it is you know some of these guys have they came up especially in the 80s and you could go out and make your whole living in a single band putting out albums and doing tours. And if you planned your money right, you could, you could make a living and live pretty well, or you could plan, you could, 
playing your money wrong and think you were going to do well and then find out you didn't have crap. But either way, you had a hell of a ride while doing it. Hmm. But now you have these same guys that they still want to go out. They want to make music. They still have talent. They still have passion. But the idea of being able to just be in one band, and I talked to to a, a guest coming up in a few weeks about this too, because he does a lot of different things. Is you know, I asked him, "Do you ever miss just doing one band of of, of enveloping yourself and working with a certain group of people, and you kind of get this hive mentality with them and, and a you know a kinship and all of that kind of stuff?" And he said that that weirdly he didn't, but you know. I think for a lot of these guys, it's they would probably prefer to be able to go back to that that one band and, and make their living and and develop a lot of stuff with people. But instead, they've got you know families to feed and stuff like that. So it's it's like okay, if I can if I can do a project and I can do it in my home studio for most of the time, and it's not really going to cost me any more than you know licenses on my software. And so I'm doing a you know close to pure profit for what I'm doing. Why not do it mm-hmm. and and still get my songwriting ideas out and and have an opportunity to maybe work with some people that I've always wanted to work with so so I kind of look at it that way that it's nothing nothing really wrong with uh with doing it you know that way. I do see your point though of uh and, and you've been pretty pretty open and honest with all the people you've interviewed lately too of saying you know. This is a project. Do you, are we ever going to see you guys live? Uh, and um, you've gotten, you know, different subsets of answers from everybody. Uh, but I think the common thread that I, I hear in all, almost all of them is we're going to have to see how the album does. You know, and, and so that to me always resonates as crap. It's going to do okay in Europe. It'll do okay in Europe enough to get on some festivals and we'll never see them in the U.S. because they're not a damn pop band. Well, the way I look at that, um, there's a couple of different ways you can look at it. But the tour question, <laughs> yeah, I always ask it. Yeah. Because I, I, I want to know. But you've been much more frank about it lately well, in the to. interviews you've been doing. Well, I, the thing with a lot of these guys, and I say it to them, I love the music. Yeah. But I'm a rock fan. I want to see it live. Right. Um, one of the things... That, the, the scheduling thing always comes up. They nearly always blame the scheduling on someone. Uh-huh. Right? Um, the other, the other thing that none of them ever, ever say, and it has to be a factor, is a promoter is not going to book a project. It's going to book an established name. It doesn't matter who's in it. Yeah, it could be killer, and the promoter is going to look at that and say, "Who are these guys?" Yeah, and then he's going to go, "I'm not going to book them." Oh, here's Rat. It's got Stephen Piercy and Juan Crucier. I don't care who's in the band. It's got the banner rat behind him. Yeah. I'm not going to book Stephen Piercy's uh, side project. Or well, probably like not that. in the U.S., but in, the, in Europe, yeah, they might. They Cause might. Because in, in Europe, you actually have, you have more fans that know who the heck the guys in the band are. Hmm. So they, oh, it, it's a band with this guy, this guy, and this guy. Oh, hell yeah. I'll go do that. We're, we're in the U.S. Uh, for a, a huge chunk of fans they have no idea they just know go back to bob's movie they know the brand mm-hmm. and that's it like the album that's coming out it's going to come out now later this year is uh the third kxm record uh-huh now i honestly do not know with them what the hell i'm promoting anymore because <laughs> we've had i've had doug on yeah i love doug yeah absolutely love him really yeah. nice guy and the albums are good i really like the records yeah. but they haven't played one damn show nope. anywhere Nope. And all you hear is, uh, oh, Ray Luzier. It's, it's always Ray gets to blame with Corn. Yeah. Right? And uh, even though he's probably on the road with Corn six months of the year, and I'm like, what about the other six months? Yeah. Um, but if I get offered that, what question am I going to ask those guys that I haven't asked them the first two albums? There is no, I, I can't think of one question I can ask hmm. them. And that's where it becomes confusing for me. Yeah. Because it's not that I don't like the music. It's what the fuck am I, am I actually <laughs> promoting anymore? Yeah. Um, because I, we're used to, as rock fans from the 80s, it's the cycle. It's the, the band get together, the band create music, then they go out and they tour and they play lots of shows. Yeah. And, and with these guys now, it's they get in a room for 10 days, they write the record and they release it and then nothing. 
until the next record. Mm-hmm. And then I've asked all the questions already. And then this time, yeah, I'm like, what am I doing? <laughs> I'm serious. Yeah. Well, it's a good point. I never thought about it that way, but it's probably because I come at it from the musician angle as well. So I usually hear things I'm curious about mm. on there. Yeah, but you can ask him about the songs. Will you get half an hour out of that? Yeah. You would? Yeah. I would. No way I would. I just wouldn't. I'd be like, what did you do different to this record? And then are you going to tour? Oh, Ray's really busy. I'm like, oh my God, okay. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, you know, because even um, if I would have had more time with, with Glenn, I would have been asking him about this, you know, and I did ask him about some stuff kind of in the beginning but it, it, it got cut with some other things but okay they were yeah there was like you know how you know how are you getting that are you doing this or this are you using this or um so there were a few things that right off the bat i just as as a guitar player it was like you know is that a guitar is that a synth are you using an ebo what's going on with that mm-hmm. um and that that just kind of got into a almost kind of a shooting the shit thing at the beginning okay um so it kind of didn't it didn't make the final interview uh but if I'd had time long, you know, longer time, I think it would have circled back and 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 put that back in there. But yeah, mm. yeah. So, anyways, back to back to Don. Since I drag you down <laughs> this freaking rabbit hole, sorry about that. Yeah. But uh, uh, just haven't talked to you for a while, so yeah. Kind of got uh, I've got metal fan diarrhea going here on the mouth. <laughs> um, so yeah, so you so you were able to finally talk to Don, which is which is very cool, um, and uh, kind of check this one off the list, I guess. Yeah, I've only got George now, <laughs> um, which, you know, we might, I'm sure we're going to be offered the end machine. Probably. Uh, that's out in April. Yeah, April. Uh, yeah, I believe so. And I've heard a couple of tracks on it. It's really good. And what I, I really like is they're actually doing shows. Yeah. Um, they're not doing many, but it's a start. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, which is which is great. Um I don't know whether it's docking with Robert Mason or Lynch Mob with Jeff Pilson. Yeah, <laughs> right, I know. <laughs> but that's, uh... that's all right. I'll take it either way. So so anything else before we dive into uh, your talk with Don? No, no? nothing. Just roll it. It's, all right, let's roll uh, Richie's talk with the legendary Don Dockin. Hey, Don, it's Richie for the interview. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. I just got off the, got off the radio. <laughs> the reason I have you on, Don, we're going to talk about a race to Slate that's uh, 20 years old this year, if you can believe that. But I, I do have one question about the 80s, uh, and it, re- it relates to where I'm from. I'm originally from Ireland. Um, I, I believe that your bus was firebombed in Belfast on a tour there in the mid-80s. Do you have any memories of that? Oh, yeah. I got memories of that. It was scary. <laughs> um, I couldn't figure out why they bombed our bus and not uh, Krebs' bus. And we found out that, I guess, during that time, there was a lot of 
dissension, the Catholic Protestant wars or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, yeah, there was a lot of stuff going on there in Ireland. And the reason that apparently they bombed our bus was because we had an English license plate. Okay. Scary stuff. I, That's why. Yeah, I went, I used to go up there in the 80s and, you know, seeing guys, army guys walking around with machine guns and all that, it kind of makes you think. Oh, yeah. Uh, we pulled in the hotel. They had spotlights. They searched our bus for weapons. Uh, they came on our bus. It was a scary time. And then we went, wanted to go to a pub. And they told us, you know, well, that's a Catholic pub and that's a Protestant pub and that's an IRA pub. And I'm like, we're Americans, man. We're not, you know, I, I got no preference. So we're, I just want to have a drink. But, <laughs> you know, they kind of divided up the town, you know. Yeah, yeah. So I hope that's all over with now. Oh, it, oh, it's it's long gone. It's well over. It ended years ago, really. But um, Good. yeah. So so Don, let's get into a race to slate. Um, the album before that, Shadow Life. Uh, has your opinion on that softened at all as time has gone by? Or are you still not a fan of it? No, I mean, look, not because I wrote them. I, I wrote a, I wrote a couple songs on that record. You know, and I liked those songs, you know, the ones that I wrote and contributed to. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I, it was the only docking record I wasn't involved with as a writer because I'd had a tragedy in my family and lost an eight-year-old to cancer right about that time. So uh, it was hard times. I was in heavy depression. I just didn't want to, I just couldn't get into that record. So I let George and Jeff take over the helm on the writing of the songs. I wrote most of the lyrics, but. I didn't like the songs. I didn't think they represented Dawkins. Mm-hmm. I didn't think it sounded like Dawkins. So at the last minute, I threw a couple of songs in there. I can't remember which ones I wrote. I think I wrote three, you know, stop the top. But I just didn't think that, you know, George was in his, it was in a mindset during that record that we needed to change and we needed to get more hip or get more grunge or get more dark. And I said, and my argument was, why don't we just be Dawkins? That's what we do. You know, I wouldn't expect Judas Priest to go disco, you know, or Ozzy, <laughs> you know, you just do what you docking's docking, you know? Yeah. But George, he thought we should change and become hip. And I said, I don't know what that means, man. You just write what comes from your heart and what comes from your soul. And, uh, you know, but they didn't want to. So that's why I didn't like the record. I thought it was very, uh, the, the funny thing is that's Nick's, that's Nick's favorite record. Mm. <laughs> but that's because he played great drums on it. He really did do a great job playing the drum. We actually rented an airplane hangar and took the whole portable recording studio into an airplane hangar and recorded his drums in a hangar to get this big drum sound. And he played really well on it. But that's why, but I said, but that's why you like the record? Because you're a drumming? How about just as a body of work? You know, I, I don't like this. I don't like the record. Hmm. To the point that I didn't allow them to use the Dockin logo. It's the only Dockin record that ever came out. If you look at the cover, yeah. that's not our logo. Mm-hmm. I own the logo, and I said, you can't put my name on this. You can put my name, but not my logo. I own it, and I don't want it on here. That's why it's got some goofy-looking album cover (laughs) with a weird font that says Dawkins, like somebody wrote it. Yeah. So, So, no, I haven't softened to it, no. Okay, so so after the the album cycle and the tour cycle for that, um, and George left, did did you consider doing a solo record, or was the next record always going to be a Dawkins album? No, I thought it's going to be a Dawkins album, and I said we got to get, and I'm going to go. And I'm look the the album before uh, Shadow Life was the album was was my solo album, which was uh, dysfunctional, which was dysfunctional, and I, that was basically I wrote the entire record. It was my next solo album, and at the last minute, George joined the band, literally like a week before we were finished with the record. So he came back in the band, and he and then he redid my solos, and so basically that was an album written by Jeff and myself. Mm-hmm. And Mick, we wrote that record by ourselves in my recording studio. I owned one at the time. And so George came in. I was really proud of that record. You know, it was a lot of Beatle influence, stuff like that. But I thought it's still a great record all these years later. But then George came back in the band and we wrote Shadow Light. And I thought, what the hell is this? <laughs> so I thought, okay, we've got to get back. And, and the sad thing is, is that uh, Dysfunctional sold almost a half a million copies. And Shadow Light sold 50,000 copies. Wow. So I think that speaks. I think that speaks for the fans that said, "What the hell is this?" Hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. And so I said, "Uh oh, we've lost our fan base. Now we're in trouble. We got to write a really, really killer record. You know, straight up dock and heavy harmonies, cool riffs." Red Beach came in the band, and we wrote "Race to Slate," and that's and that that album kicks ass. Hmm. 
Mm. Now, tell me about finding the guitar player, Don. Um, did you did you think of asking John Nor and Billy White, or did you even know John Levin back then? Oh yeah, I knew John then. Okay. Um, John, I knew him. He was at, but he was just my attorney at the time. He wasn't playing music anymore. He had, you know, he'd been in Warlock for years and mm-hmm. uh, with Dorpesh's band. But he'd become, he went back to law school and became an attorney. And uh, but I hadn't, you know, thought about him then. He was, he wasn't doing music. And then I knew Reb from Winger, and uh, Winger had broken up. And I said, well, Reb's a great guitar player. So I called him up, and I thought, well, he'd probably a long shot because he lived in like uh, Pittsburgh or Philadelphia or something like that. And I thought, he's too far away. We're in California. But uh, he came out and jammed with us, and I went, oh, my God, this is the guy, you know. So, hmm. And he proved it. You, know, you look at the video we did of uh, uh, one live, uh, what was it called? The Sun Theater show we did. It was called The Sun. Live at the Anaheim. Live in, live in, yeah, live in the Sun. Anaheim. Yeah. Live from the Sun, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I kind of directed that. I edited it. You know, I was my first time being a director and an editor and did all the special effects. Now I look at those special effects. They were so complicated back then. Now I could knock it out the week with the technology. <laughs> yeah. You know, all those special effects took me like weeks, you know, to render. And now you can do it in 10 minutes in these new Macintoshes. So. Mm. We did the video. The video speaks for itself, and uh, we kicked ass that night. Unfortunately, you know, uh, I, I made a little reel of all the spots of Reb. I made like a little clip of Reb spots from Life in the Sun, all his solos and his rhythm playing, and made a little clip for him. And he and he gave that clip to White Snake, which is his favorite band at the time, or still is. And we're getting ready to do another tour, and literally. Uh, uh, two weeks before we were supposed to, we were supposed to go on tour with White Snake. Rev called me and says, "Look, I just got off with the White Snake gig," and I went, "Uh oh." <laughs> <laughs> I said, "But we're on that tour. We're on the White Snake Scorpion tour. What the hell are we gonna do?" So uh, that's when I I just found a guitar player in Italy, and uh, he was a real sweet guy, and mm. he came out and did the tour for us. Okay. Didn't rehearse, just showed up, just learned the songs, did the whole tour with us. Then I would have kept him in the band, but he had to be, you know, he lived in Italy, so he had to go back to Italy. Alex DeRosa, great mm. guitar player. So, so, so that's how that all went down. Mm. So, so Don, what, was there pressure, you think, to get a name guy from the 80s to replace George? Or would you have been happy getting an unknown guy if he was good enough? Well, there was pressure. That's why I ended up taking not just one guitar player. I, I had John Norum come into the band, but then. Uh, I think one of the guys, Metallica, gave me a cassette of Billy White. He had a, a band called Watchtower, and they gave me this tape. And I said, holy shit, who's this kid? And he was like 18. And so I said, man, I should get this kid. He's out of Austin, Texas. He's got a little bit of blues influence. He was a great guy, great player. But I'd already had John, so I thought, what the hell? I'll get two guitar players. So that's when I brought in Billy and John, mm. which on Up in the Ashes, is some amazing guitar solos on that, two mm. of them. So, Don, when you were writing A Race to Slate, uh, was, was Reb there from the beginning for the songwriting, or did he come in when you'd already written yeah. a lot of it? No, day one, day one. Okay. So, wh- what's the difference between the way Reb presented ideas to you and the way George presented ideas to you? Well, I wish you could, you know, be more flattering about that, but honestly, in the 80s, George and I uh, never wrote together, ever. Okay. George and I never wrote one song together. George and Jeff and Mick would write together. I wrote by myself. I had a little apartment, and I'd go in my little four-track little cassette recorder, and I wrote like the songs like In My Dreams and In The Fires. So I would mostly concentrate on the singles, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the truth is, 90% of the songs that came out in the docking days were all written by me. Like People thought it was kind of like a thing, like George writes the music, Don writes the lyrics. But that wasn't true. I'm a guitar player, you know, so an elite guitar player. Mm. Uh, you know, you see, if you go and look on YouTube at our very first TV show, and Juan Tuesday was on bass, and George had just joined the band, and Nick, uh, you watch that, that movie, uh, it's called The Beat Club, filmed in Germany, and I'm playing guitar the whole, the whole you know, show mm. with George. Okay. So uh, I wrote most of the singles in my apartment. They wrote by themselves. Uh, it was a kind of a drug issue because those guys were doing a lot of drugs and that, and, and that's nothing to, I don't have to hide because everybody talks about it, but it was debauchery and cocaine madness in the eighties. Huh. 
you know, it was the whole es- uh, Carlos Escobar, you know, kind of days. <laughs> the, Medellin cartel, the Medellin cartel was supplying every rock star on the planet. <laughs> so, but I, but it wasn't my thing. I never, I never got into cocaine. So mm. I don't like cocaine. I never did it. So it kind of left me odd man out. Okay. So I couldn't, I couldn't work with them, you know. Mm. I couldn't sit there with the chopping lines of cocaine you know, higher in a kite and working, you know, till six in the morning, I couldn't do it. So I just went home, wrote songs by myself. So almost every song we wrote, In My Dreams, In the Fire, Alone Again, obviously I wrote before I met those guys. I wrote that in the 70s. It's an old song. Into the Fire, I wrote late 70s. And they all were just kind of sitting on tapes. So that's how, unfortunately, unfortunately, that's how it went. And then when George came back in the band, unfortunately, we just finished Dysfunctional, so he didn't write on that album either. Okay. So the, the answer is, George and I don't write together, and we never have. Okay. The only song, uh, then we wrote the new song, It's Just Another Day, Yeah. for the Japan Reunion Tour, and Jeff and George live near each other, like a couple blocks from each other. They had written a song uh, and asked me if I would sing it, and as usual, you know, I, I just didn't, I didn't feel it. I like, you know, the song was slow. I didn't think it was very up-tempo. It was kind of dreary. So I just said, guys, can I, you know, take a crack at this? And I asked them to speed it up and kick it in the ass a little bit and give me a crack at writing the lyrics. And so I'd say that song is a nice uh, representation of a band effort. Mm. Jeff. George and myself and Mick, that's a, that's a band song, I'd say. This another day, we all contributed to that song. Hmm. Jeff engineered it, Jeff produced it, George came up with the guitar riff, I came up with the lyrics and the melodies and the harmonies, I mean, the choruses. So, I'd say it's representative of a, of a collaboration of George and I. And yeah. So, so do you think, Don, that Erase the Slate is a, is a collaboration between the four of you? I have to say, Erase the Slate was the fastest record we ever wrote. <laughs> Okay. Um, but we had the blessing, you know, back in the days, you know, you go into recording rehearsal studios at bucks a day to rehearse these big stages. You go into recording studio back in those days, it were like $1,500, $2,000 a day. So we're under a lot of pressure to get it done quick, but we didn't, we spend all the money and blow it all. We'd always blow our budget on the, on the whole album because it took so long with all the infighting and arguing and drugs and stuff. But by the time we wrote Erase the Slate, I had built my own recording studio. Hmm. So here I had the luxury, I could take my time. There was no like, we have to hurry up with you know, the money, you know? I owned the place, so I didn't give a shit, you know? <laughs> it was my recording studio, and I had a rehearsal room, a lot of punk bands like Pennywise, and those kind of bands, and the rehearsal room rehearsing for months. They kind of paid the rent, and I just you know, put a couple hundred thousand dollars into equipment, Michael Wagner, the famous engineer and producer, did a lot of docking records. Hmm. He came in. It was, it was just an old print shop. I literally just gutted this big building and took it down to nothing, just bare walls. And Michael Wagner came in and just uh, designed it and wired it and did everything. Hmm. He, put, he put the console in. He wired up the patch bay. He basically built my studio. Okay. It's very sweet of him. Now- so here we have this luxury of Red to come in. We have this big, giant rehearsal room. And Reb, I just said, hey, Reb, you know, we didn't know each other very well. So I'm like, okay, I tell you what, Reb, you know, just show me what you got, you know? Hmm. And he had like a million ideas, a million. Okay. And I was like, holy shit. So we just, I just sit in the room and Nick and Jeff and Reb would start jamming. And I just sit there and say, wait a minute, what's that? What's that? You know, let's try that. Let's work on that. And he come up with a cool guitar riff, like, erase, like the song, Race the Slave. Hmm. That cool and it was such a cool riff. And then right away, I just have my pad and paper, and I just have a pen, and I just start writing lyrics, you know? Yeah, yeah. It seems to me, Don, that you knew straight away that it was going to work. Yes. Reb, Reb's super easy to get along with. Uh, it was the opposite. You know, it wasn't as George is a bad guy or anything. It's just we had just really radical different personalities and uh we didn't see the world the same way hmm. now R- reb has said over the years that you were tough he was you were tough on him in the studio do, do you know what he's alluding to there and do, do you actually agree with him 
on Reb? Yeah, he said you were tough. To, yeah, you were I tough. was. Okay. Yeah, I was. Can I you... was because I was. It's my fault. Look, I knew the pressure was on because, um, you know, we had had all these millions, sold millions of records. Just, I was very proud of Dysfunctional. Uh, we thought it was going to go to the roof. It was going to the roof. Sold 400,000 in like a couple months. But unfortunately, we were on Sony, and Sony made an executive decision that they weren't going to do promote their rock anymore. They're going to concentrate on their Michael Jacksons and the Janet Jacksons, and they just didn't care about rock anymore. So mm. they, they, like, it literally dropped us in a hot heartbeat. So the album was going to the roof, and they just stopped promoting it. So it died. Okay. And I was frustrated. And then we threw a new label, CMC, and do this album, uh, Shadow Life. And I'm like, what does Shadow Life mean? What is this artwork all about? What is What are these songs all about? I go, what the <laughs> hell is this, you know? Mm. And this is, is going to be our first, you know, collaborative record. But uh, my niece uh, got cancer at eight, and she passed away. And I was my brother's daughter, and we were all, you know, engrossed in spending our time at the hospital you know so i had i didn't i didn't i just couldn't get involved in the record hmm. and it shows you know it doesn't sound like it there's only dawn influenced except for the three songs that i wrote so um with reb you know i thought okay this is it that's our last chance you know and you got to remember when the race of slavery were writing it we didn't have a record deal oh we didn't have a record deal okay no there was no record deal we were done cmc <laughs> went out of business we were shit out of luck. So here I am writing a race of slate, but there's no record deal. So I thought, we don't know if we're going to get signed. The world's changed. It's 1998. Nobody knows what's going on in the music business. Napster's kicking everybody's ass. The poor Lars Ulrich has to go to Congress and beg them to put a stop to it. You know, this free mm. downloading and he got shit for it. And, and he was the prophet, you know, Lars, you know, he he prophesized that if you don't stop this stuff, the record industry is going to die. Hmm. And he was right. Look what happened. You know, Napster was Pandora's box. It came out of the box, and all of a sudden, people don't want to buy records. You know, they're like, well, why should I pay 15 bucks for a record? Why don't you just download it for free? Okay, it didn't sound look good. It's kind of crappy sounding. But, you know, it's free. And uh, my kids were guilty of it, too. I had two teenagers and they were downloading. I was furious at them. <laughs> but Lars, you know, Lars went to Congress. I mean, Jesus Christ, and fought, you know, and everybody gave him shit like saying, well, you know, he's Lars Ulrich and they're famous and they're millionaires. And what do you care if we steal your songs? It wasn't the point about stealing. It's if I, if I spend six months on a painting and pay for all the materials and the paint and the easel and the brushes and make a painting and I want to go sell it, you know, and all of a sudden I show up at the art gallery and some guy's out front with 8,000 copy posters of my painting. That's not right. Yeah. And, you know, you can buy Don's, you know, painting for a thousand bucks or you can buy a copy of it on a poster for a dollar. <laughs> That's basically a good analogy of people stealing our songs. Mm. Mm. So, so Don, just so why do they want to buy my painting? So Lars was right. So I felt a lot of pressure. Reb is absolutely correct, and I, I've, always, I've apologized to him emphatically for 25 years now. I'm sorry I busted your balls, Reb. But, you know, I wanted him to, you know, be a guitar hero, even though he already was, and just to blow, you know, to stand up against the, the legend of George Lynch. Yeah. And then Reb said the right thing, though. He joined the band. He said, I'm not George Lynch. And I don't want to be George Lynch. I have my own style, my own thing. I don't want to be George Lynch, you know? Hmm. And I said, huh. So I said, well, you know what? You're right. Just be Reb, you know? And uh, that was the reason I took him to the band. Because all the other guitar players, the audition, were coming in, and they all were just copying George. And I'm like, I don't want to copy a George. I want somebody that's original. Hmm. Don, what, what else Reb brought in? What was great about Reb was he's a singer. You know, he's a, he, and he's a real great singer, you know, so he brought in, as being a singer and not just a guitar player like George, he brought in musicality and he understood how to compose a song to leave space for the singer. Okay. And that really helped me a lot. Mm. So, so Don, you alluded there to auditioning other guitar players. Uh, were any big name guitar players people might, might know? 
No, actually, no. I was, I was that. I was going the other way. I wanted to find another Billy White. You know, I actually called Billy White. I wanted him back in the band. I loved him. I wanted him to come back. Um, but he became a Buddhist monk, and he's still a Buddhist monk. He's oh. been a monk for twenty-five, thirty years now. He's a monk. He's got the shaved head and the robes, and he has a monastery in Mexico, and I think one in New York. Wow. So he's a priest now. He's a Buddhist priest. Yeah, Billy, and he still plays. You can look him up, Billy White on YouTube. Huh. And he's and he literally he's in his monk outfit, and he plays acoustic guitar and a and a, and a stomp box, and he has repeaters, and he's surrounded by guitars, and he plays like multiple instruments all at once. He, I mean, if you see Billy White one of his acoustic shows, it'll blow your mind. He's amazing. Wow. So, but he always sends me emails once in a while saying. You know, I wish I probably should have came back in the band. I, I really loved, you know, it was my rock star days, and I had these great fond memories of U.S. tour headlining, and you know, and we're going to Japan, sold out shows, and you know, with John Norm. He's like, he really missed it, and it was a superstar band. Peter mm. Baltus on bass. Oh yeah, he went on to Motorhead on drums. Uh, John Norm on guitar and Billy. That was a superstar band. Yeah, yeah. So, so Don, whose idea was it to? Uh to cover Harry Nielsen's one on Eraser Slate. And did you have any covers you wanted to do? Any other ones? I just loved it. It reminded me. It's funny you mentioned that song because we're doing it tonight. Oh, good. Yeah, we're bringing it out and putting it back in the set because um, I just thought it was a, every album, if you look at Doc, and almost every album we've done a cover. I just did I did the, the, the cover of Jefferson Airplane, uh, who the singer Marty Ballin, who just passed away, sang it. Mm-hmm. A song called Today, that uh, on our last album, the song Today, yeah. um, Jefferson Airplane, we've done mm-hmm. one, we've done, uh, we've done uh, Paint It Black, we've done a bunch of, you know, covers on all the records, we always throw in a bonus track, if not for America, for Japan, they're all usually covers. Yeah. Because I want to turn on the young kids and the fans, they're maybe in their 20s, I'm trying to like, you know, turn them of the stuff that turned me on when I was 14, 15 years old. Hmm. So that's funny you mention that. We're, we're putting one back in the set. Nice. So, so Don, Mick sang lead on a song on A Race to Slate. Um, I'm curious why mm-hmm. Why has Jeff never sang lead vocals on a Dawkins record? Uh, he did sing lead vocals a uh, song on uh, Shadow Life. Oh, oh, did he? Okay. Yeah, he actually did. I can't remember the song, but he he did sing a song on there. Um, yeah, I, 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 haven't, I haven't listened to that, Don, in over 20 if years. I had, if, I had, <laughs> yeah, if I had the track list, I could tell you which one it was. But Jeff did sing a song on Shadow Life. And okay. Then we, and then on that tour with Reb, I would pick up the bass in the show, and I would play bass, and Jeff would sing Lucky. Oh, just got lucky. Just got lucky. Yeah. That was, yeah, that, I think Jeff and Nick, I don't know who wrote the song, because I wasn't there, but that's why I didn't write that song. You know, I just wrote a couple, like one one line. Hmm. And I think Jeff and uh, Jeff and Nick wrote that song. So he used to go out and sing "Lucky." Hmm. So, so Donnie, are you involved in choosing what tracks go on the domestic version and the bonus tracks that go on the Japanese version, or is that out of your hands? Yep, that's it's in my hands. Okay, I, I'm just my decision. Yeah. So, is it easy? Is it easy? F- to do that, to know which ones to put on the Japanese one? No, it's never, never right. Every time we do a record, I, I'm like, uh, I'm like, you know, we usually record 15, 16, 17 songs. And then when I'm getting, as a producer, I'm getting down to the end. Sometimes you think a song's going to be amazing. And then sometimes it just falls by the way, hmm. you know, and then I'll, and then, so we pick the cherries that speak to my heart. And I say, well, this one speaks to my soul. These are going to go on the album. And then we'll take the quote unquote B song, unfortunately, and put it as a bonus track. One of the mistakes we made, probably one of the best songs I've ever written was called, I can't change the world. That only came out on the Japan version. And it was a great song. It should have been on the American release. Mm-hmm. So, so you never know. Yeah. Yeah. So when did you get an inkling on the, on the Eraser Slate tour that, Jeff was thinking of leaving, or was it a surprise to you? Oh yeah, big surprise. He left us in a very bad situation, you know. Hmm. He, he didn't call me and say I'm leaving. He just left. Oh. <laughs> and uh, we had five shows booked in Florida, and like you know, 
three weeks. And I'm calling him and calling him, saying, do you want to rehearse? Do you want to talk about the set list? He wasn't returning my calls. I mean, no offense, but he kind of just cowardly. He was kind of cowardly about it. And he just disappeared. And I said, well, well where are you? I'm calling me. We got shows coming up. So I had to end up canceling the tour, the five-day run in Florida. He just disappeared. Wow. I never saw him again. Never saw him again for years. Okay. He literally, he literally disappeared. I think he joined Dio or something. Hmm. Okay. Wow. Yeah, that was it. He joined Dio. Yeah. But you know, all he had to do was call me and say, I'm done. So, you know, it kind of blew my mind because you want to leave the band, leave the band. Yeah. You know, but tell me. <laughs> so I get a bass player. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I'm calling him every day. I actually, it was like, like the old joke, like the, it's, the, it's like your wife leaves you, you know? <laughs> I'm over. I'm going to his house, pounding on his door, going, "Jeff, open up the door. What are you doing?" <laughs> and you know, he wouldn't answer the door. Yeah. Wow. So, so Don, I just got to. You didn't know what to say. Yeah, but I just. Great, but obviously, that created very bad blood with us for a long time. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. So, I just got a couple of questions, Don, before I leave you go. Um, what are the most elaborate gifts you've gotten over the years from Japanese fans? Elaborate? Yeah, like like you look at it and you go, I can't believe they actually made that for me. You know, like they put a lot of attention to detail and a lot of the gifts over there. Oh, detail? Well, you know these things called origami? Yes. And you make these little like little cranes. Mm-hmm. And we used to get a little, you know, you can buy them in the store and all that stuff, you know, in Japan. But one fan literally made them himself. But he made like 500 of them. <laughs> wow. And he strung them all together with various colors. And like 500, and they're all strung together. It looked like a little chandelier. And he gave it to me, and I thought, oh, you bought this in a store. He goes, no, I, I just want you to know, I, I, uh, to prove to you that I wrote, you know, I put a little Japanese saying on every single little one. Lyrics from Dawkins songs. 500 of them he made. Wow. And how long that must have taken him? A month. <laughs> and he gave it to me, and I, and I was so uh, um, flattered. And I said, wow. I said, well, I made a joke. I said, you could have just went down to the Japanese uh, American gift shop and bought these. Yeah. And he said, no. He goes, I was listening to Dawkins albums every day and making these origamis. And he strung them all together on thread. And it was like they're about four feet long, and like rainbow colors. And I had that hanging in my house, in my studio for years. But that was a very flattering gift. I had a girl once, you know, Rolex. And wow. I refused to take it. Wow. And I said, I can't take this. And then I thought, and then I remember George or Jeff saying, dude, dude, just take it. It's not real. It's a knockoff. Because, you know, you can buy these fake Rolexes in Japan and in Hong Kong. Yeah. You know, for a hundred bucks, you know. And I said, I don't know. Looks real to me. So I took it to a store in Tokyo, had it appraised. He goes, yeah, this is real Rolex. This is a Rolex. Real deal. Not fake. And then I said, oh, shit. And I really felt guilty about it. And all of a sudden, uh, like four nights later, we were in like another city. And I saw the girl at the meet and greet. And I said, you, and I, wait a minute. You you come backstage with me. <laughs> and I brought her backstage. I said, you've got to take this back. You know? Hmm. It was like a $4,000 Rolex. Wow. <laughs> I, said, I can't accept this. I thought maybe she stole it from her father. <laughs> you know, she probably nicked it from her parents, you know, because it was a guy's watch, you know, but I thought, I can't take this. You know, I just can't. Yeah. And she cried. She cried a lot. And I said, you know, because she's all, you know, ashamed, embarrassed. And I said, look, I'm happy you're a fan. God bless you. You know? Yeah. I love people like you, but I just, and I said, listen to me, I don't wear a watch. <laughs> and I said, I promise you, if I take this watch, I'll lose it. I've, I've had people, my daughter bought me a watch once, and I tried so hard not to lose it, and I lost it in a month. I, just can't, <laughs> I, don't, I, I used to wear rings and bracelets and all these expensive silver skull head rings, 100% silver. And and I'd always, you know, they cost me $1,000 a ring, and I'd lose them. I just can't hang on to jewelry, so I don't wear jewelry anymore. Okay. I wear like these little uh, beads and stuff and bracelets that cost nothing because <laughs> I know I'm going to lose it. Yeah, yeah. So, so Don, final question for me, and I, I don't know whether you're going to remember this or not, but the Long Way Home record. Now, I've been told that Fed, FedEx damaged the masters for that and that not all the songs on the album were the ones that you recorded. Is that true? And what happened to the songs that you actually did record that didn't make the record? 
Oh, we mean the original masters? Yes. Oh, how'd you hear about that? Yeah, they just, they fucked the tapes up. Okay. The box was crushed and there was a tear. Uh, well, somebody had taken a, like a, we call it exacto knife, mm-hmm. you know, and they had, and they had opened the box and they sliced through right through the tape all the way through. Oh. Oh. And it was kind of a jagged cut. I couldn't put it back together. We tried to fix it. And so I went, now we're in deep shit. That's all our work. So I had to go back to the hard drives and find the pre-production demos and stuff like that and try to fix them up. Okay. It was a big panic because mm. the record company's like, where's our tape? Where's our, where's our record? And I'm like, oh shit. <laughs> They're like, you know, you're supposed to, you're supposed to deliver on September 10th. It's going to be out for Christmas. And the record now is trashed. And I'm like, okay, everybody, let's go back, start digging through the hard drives, find all the earlier versions. Okay. So, so the, so, it was a nightmare. So the songs that were actually on the record were the ones written for the record. You didn't have to go and get any solo stuff or anything like that to replace it. No, no. Same songs. Okay. It was the same songs. Okay. You know, I mean, maybe, I don't remember, I don't remember exactly uh, the song Little Girl, I think, was completely obliterated and we kind of rewrote it. Because as I went back in the studio with what I had, I started making changes. Ah. So the songs went through changes. I changed some of the lyrics. I changed some of the choruses. But basically, the music was intact. But I, so I thought, well, we got to redo this damn thing anyway. And I, and I started listening. Oh, I'm going to change the lyric here. I want to change this lyric. I want to change that lyric. I had a friend named Kelly Keeling who came out. and he, I said, look, I'm in a bad situation. You need to come out and help me you know, fix this record. So Kelly Kelly went in the studio with me and we just, we were working like 14 hour days in the studio trying to finish an entire record again in 10 days. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it was tough. I didn't get a lot of sleep. I didn't even go home. You know, the studio was only like 45 minutes from my house. I said, what's the point? And I found myself sleeping on the couch, you know, in the waiting room. And I just slept on the couch and had a little kitchenette. And I would just work until I just fell over, or my engineer, the poor guy, Mike Lesnick. And we would just, I would just go on the couch and say, I'm just going to go and sleep in here and close the door. And you got another session coming in, just tell them I'm in, the, I'm in this other room sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd wake up and I'd have some coffee and we'd go back at it. Wow. Wow. Well, well Don. It was I, tough. Yeah. There's a couple of Sunless Days and Under the Gun are brilliant songs on that. I'd, I'd love if you did them live oh, again. Oh, man. Sunless Days. What a cool riff. Mm. Yeah, John Norm wrote that. Dagon, dun, dagon, dun, 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 Great song. John wrote that. Yeah, Norm wrote that riff. Okay. And John wrote a lot of great riffs. Sunless Days, and there was a really nice ballad on there, I remember. I can't remember. What was that ballad? There was a time. As I walk along the beach at night. Oh, yeah, there was a time, I believe. Yeah, that one. I would anything. Yeah, Kelly Keely and I wrote that. Okay. We wrote that at my house. We wrote that. He, wrote, he was staying at my house, and we just rewrote it, and, and just uh, I remember we wrote it in about six in the morning. <laughs> We've been up all night in the studio. Nobody has slept. Kelly is kind of manic. He's a bit of a book. I love him dearly, but he's bipolar. And I got up in the morning. And he was sitting downstairs scribbling all this stuff on paper. And I sat down and I picked up a guitar and. And then he starts singing, you know, it was late for the dawn, God, they didn't try to carry on. Hmm. I went, oh, that's a cool melody. And we just knocked it out. Nice. Literally sat on the couch. I think it was about six or seven in the morning. And by eight, an hour and a half later, the song was done. Wow. <laughs> nice. I like, those, I like those spiritual songs that, you know, when I, what I call it a God song, you know? Yeah. Where yeah. it comes from the universe. It just comes, some, you know, I've, I've spent weeks on one song, weeks, writing lyrics, trying to arrange it, da 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 And it's just, I'm stuck. I just can't make it happen, you know? Mm. And then you write a song like, uh, There Was a Time, or Summer's Days, when I wrote it in like, you know, 45 minutes. And I love those songs. In my dreams, I wrote in Puerto Vallarta, drunk on tequila. <laughs> and I was sitting on the beach with my acoustic guitar, and I had, and I started hearing this thing in my dreams, it's still the same. And I had no paper, no pen, ran, ran, ran back to my casita on the beach, grabbed a pen and paper, went back to the beach, and I had a little flashlight, and I had my acoustic guitar, and I started scribbling the lyrics around the edge of a magazine because I couldn't find any paper. So I took the magazine back to L.A., 
And I was like, I got this song, guys. I'm holding up a magazine, you know, and all the lyrics are written around the edges of the magazine. <laughs> <laughs> it was in my dream. They're like, what the fuck? Like, what, you lost your mind? I said, hey, man, guys, I couldn't find any paper. I'm sorry. <laughs> so, so, Don, have you, have you recorded any new stuff yet? I know you were talking a while back about doing a new album. We've been trying to get together forever. Uh, to, uh, truth be told, we haven't even signed the record deal yet. It's done. Uh, you know, John, everybody knows John's our, my attorney and he's not team attorney. Mm-hmm. But we've been negotiating with the record company since like four months, five months. Okay. It took a long, long time to negotiate it. Probably because it's their German label and German lawyers have their way of writing in English and John's. And uh, they kept sending us contracts. We didn't really understand what they meant. You know, and John's an entertainment lawyer. He's like, Don, I'm going to read this to you, this paragraph. He reads it to me. Do you know what that means? I said, I have no clue what they're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and he's an entertainment lawyer. He goes, I don't understand the, the language. And I said, uh, we need to find uh, someone that can kind of negotiate between John and the label that also has, is, is a, speaks proficient German and English so he can explain what the hell this means. Wow. And it was back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. So it's taken months. We finally wrapped it up. We realized we're not, we really, I was desperate to get a new album out for the summer because we have like 30 shows booked in the next five months. We're booked all the way through August. Mm-hmm. And the label says, you know, we need you to put this record out. And I said, when? When do we record it? We're booked, we're booked two, three shows a week. When, when am I going to go in the studio? I have no time now. It's too late. So John's got about 20 ideas. I've got about 20 ideas. The good news is we've had four years of just woodshedding. You know, you get an idea, you put it in your cell phone. Uh, I have a melody. I sing it into my cell phone on my iPhone. I sit in my little memo recorder. Uh-huh. And I pulled up my memo recorder the other day, and it said I had 87 ideas in my memo. <laughs> and John says, yeah, I got about that, about 80 to 100 ideas. So we're going to next weekend just sit down, pull up our cell phones, download them in the computer, and listen to all the ideas and just go, that's cool. That's not, that's cool. I like that. I don't like, I don't get that. And that's where we're at. So it's not like we're missing material. We got, we got enough material for two records. Wow. So what we've decided to do is we're going to put out my solo record for the summer solitary, which never was released. You know, I wrote that thing eight years ago Yeah. and I added three more, I added three more songs to it to make it a 12 song CD. Uh, I did three new songs. They're not new songs. They're covers, but they're really beautiful. Uh, I did this. I did the Titanic song, you know, by Celine Dion. I redid it, which mm-hmm. is like every said nobody can do the Titanic song because it's you know you can't compete with that version. It's uh, brilliant. But I I Don Dockenized it, and I did a song called uh, Jealous by uh, Labyrinth. I redid that. And I played the piano on that and sang it, and that came out really beautiful. And All the Love Can Be, also written by the same person that wrote the Titanic song, because he passed away, you know, that's the writer. He was killed in a plane crash. Yeah. Famous composer. So it's kind of a tribute. And, I, he, and he was a friend of mine. We're the same age. Our birthdays were a month apart. So it's a bit of an homage to him, uh, with the exception of the song Jealous. And I put those on the record. It's going to come out, hopefully, for the summer tour. And we're trying to re-release uh, 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 an album of uh, 12 songs that I wrote in the 70s, demoed, but never released. Wow. From the 70s. I found the master by accident. <laughs> I was cleaning out my storage locker I had for 15 years, and I saw these two reels of tape. I said, what the hell is this? And everything said Don Dockin on it. And I'm like, what is this? It's Don Dockin, Don Dockin, demo, 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 1977, 1976, 1979. I'm like, what the hell is this stuff? I went, oh my God, this is these songs from back in the day. And I never, there's a bootleg of some of them out there. I said, back in the streets. Yes, the yes. Stole. I said, yeah, those are all, those were stolen from me. That yeah. guy made a million, maybe $2 million. John thinks he made 2 or $3 million off that album. Wow. No royalties, no publishing, didn't pay me a dime. He stole the tapes. And basically said, sue me. And at the time, I said, well, why would I sue you? I mean, I can't, how do you sue someone in Germany? And fortunately for him, he put it out in eight, 1989, back in the street. That was the peak of Dawkins' career, doing yeah. stadiums. Mm-hmm. So he, he immediately sold like two or 300,000 copies and made a million bucks. <laughs> Son of a bitch. <laughs> so I took the songs back. 
I'm, I said, I talked to lawyers and we've been negotiating. I said, he said, look, he stole your songs. You have the rights to those songs. But I said, yeah, but you know, they're just, he just got the demo version. So I found the masters and I went, holy shit. So I'm going to put that out, re-release that out back in the streets. It'll be repackaged and everything. There's four brand, four other songs I wrote in the seventies that I, that he didn't get. I'm going to add them to the album. So we'll have our 12 and that's hopefully going to get that out for the summer too. Nice. So that'll buy us some time to get in the studio. We've got one month, I think it's July, that we only have two or three shows. So I told the boys, guys, this is where we have to fucking get in get in the studio and, mm-hmm. and get it going. Yeah, yeah. I'm planning on going down to the show you're playing on the 9th in New Jersey. I'm going to drive down from Boston. Yeah, so hopefully... Yeah. Okay, I mean, you, you got my number. Just text me and I'll make sure you're on the guest. So you can bring as many guests as you want. Okay. All right, Don. <laughs> well, Don, I'm, I'm going to leave you going. All right, boss. Yeah, All right. I might start practicing. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, it's been a pleasure talking to you and I'll see you in a couple of weeks. Thank you, boss. Just text me the day before so I can get you on the guest. Yeah, thanks, Don. I'll see you in a few weeks then. Okay. Thank Bye. you. Bye. No problem. Bye. dulcet tones of Don Dockin here finally on Focus on Metal. So nice job Richie for uh, for working out with the uh, classic metal guys to get uh, get Don on the show and talk all about Erase the Slate. Mm, yeah. It's nice to get a, a musician that wants to actually come on and uh, talk about an album from the past because uh, I'm trying. They're not that easy to get. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm being honest. Um, some of them just don't want to do it. Yeah. Um, if you've got a minute I can tell you a quick, couple of quick stories. I had someone else agreed to do it and I scheduled an interview with him for the night after and then I called him at the at the, the time he told me to call and he was in the middle of doing something, forgot about it. And then the following night, he told, he, he told me to remind him an hour before and, and I offered to do it actually. I said, listen, is this your number? I'll text you. And I text him and he said, oh, I'm flaking again. I'm out at dinner. <laughs> and so then so then I text him back saying, is it okay if I contact you in, uh, you know, he was going on vacation when yeah. you're back from vacation and do it. And yeah. I never responded to the text, right? Yeah. So that's one guy. Then there was another guy that brought, it's, this is another record that came out in 89 that I'm a huge fan of. And um, I contacted one of the guys in the band and he actually called me in work when I sent, when I text him and he said, listen, I can get the two guitar players that wrote the music and the three of us will do it. Yeah. And I was like, you sure you can do that? You, can you do that? That'd be fantastic. Yeah. And he says, yeah. He said, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll contact them and I'll text you later in the week. Uh-huh. I got nothing back. And this is like three weeks ago. So these guys 
are not that easy to nail yeah. down. I got an email tonight from a, a singer. Uh, I'm not going to name the album, um, but it's 30 years old again. And this album I really like. It's, it's on a major label. Um, he's a replacement singer, and I think it's it's going to have a very interesting story to it. And uh, hopefully this one will happen because I've wanted to talk to this guy for a long time. I've never spoken to him. Oh, I'll right. tell you off air who it is. Yeah, awesome. Um, and I'll tell you who the other guys are too. <laughs> but because um, you're only know, you're only finding out about this now. Yep. But I'm trying. Yeah. I'm trying. Well. It's not like we don't have a ton of stuff, and no, uh, <laughs> and and one thing we're backlogged on is that uh, we've we did, we did an interview a few weeks ago with uh, with Kane Roberts. Yeah. Speaking of, of replacement guys, and uh, that is one of the things where uh, we are set to uh, to run next week, mm-hmm. and also possibly if time works out, we'll be uh, we'll be talking to uh, another guy who's uh, got some new stuff out, but also was kind of. Well, a little grudgingly willing to talk to you about about an, another older album. He was tired, and I was tired, and yeah, yeah it's not not the best performance in me, <laughs> but but yeah, but uh, there you know, so we got some good stuff coming up next week, but uh, but for this week, uh, Scott Richie saying to have yourselves a great metal week, and until we talk to you again next week, remember focus on metal. Everything else is insignificant. It's over. Go home.